Hebrews 12, and start with verses 15 through 17. I'm going to observe this particular exhortation very carefully. It's going to be our goal this morning to not only provide explanation, but a spiritual antidote to bitterness. Bitterness. Something we all struggle with. <laughs> I struggle with it. It's a daily fight. I know Ephesians 4 tells us that it's part of our old self, the former life before Christ that needs to be put away by putting on Christ. It's a daily fight to put it off. Paul in Ephesians 4.31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And then he gives us the message of forgiveness. Hebrews 12 takes an interesting angle on the issue of, of bitterness. I thought it was unique. And normally we, are, when we read books on bitterness uh, frustration, wrath, how to deal with that, how to deal with our frustrations, we are appointed to forgiveness. We're called to forgive. And that certainly is a, an antidote, um, helpful means of fighting bitterness. Hebrews 12 gives us a different angle. And I want to draw our attention to that to encourage me, <laughs> encourage you, together in Christ as we make war on our hearts. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, and then we'll just steer the context around that. The writer says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." According to this text, he says that the root of bitterness, it springs up, it causes trouble, verse 15, and by it many become defiled, also accompanies sexual immorality. I didn't typically think of bitterness this way, as the, the root of defilement and even sexual immorality. But according to Hebrews, bitterness lies at the root of sinful conduct. It doesn't take much for, for us uh, to make these kind of observations. For me, I've had the... I guess we'd say opportunity to apply the means of grace to a number of counseling situations. And I found over and over again that when there's conflict between a husband and wife, there's bitterness, always. When there's conflict between parents and children, bitterness, always. Conflict between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, bitterness. You know, in, in the years of ministry, and I know in, in the walk of our life, we have seen amazing relationships uh, held strong in the midst of physical conflict, suffering, and trials. Uh, we could think of heart disease or cancer or whatever. We've seen friendships forged and remain faithful and steadfast. But when there's a personal conflict or offense, we've seen those relationships separated for a lifetime. It's amazing. It's mind-boggling. When we're hurt, we coddle our hurts, we pet, we stroke, we meditate on them. We raise them up as an excuse from doing what's right. I've been hurt. We use them to blame others. love to say we're blamed if you do, you're blamed if you don't. You know, when someone leaves or, or in our hearts, as we leave a situation and somebody pursues us, well, we're, we're bitter that they pursue us because they should know better. I want to be left alone. But then when nobody does pursue us, pursue our hearts, come alongside of us, we're like, do they ever think of me? Do they ever meditate? Do they ever come along to console me and encourage me? Blamed if you do, blamed if you don't. How do you win with a bitter heart? We can't. I've watched my own family members, grandparents, who offended their children over breaking one house rule. 
and that the, the children of these grandparents said, we're done with you. So they kept the grandchildren away from grandma and grandpa for some 30 years, and then grandpa died. Children lost out. Grandfather lost out. It's a lifetime loss because of, of bitterness. It's amazing. It's destructive. Well, Hebrews 12 gives us such an interesting antidote. It's encouraging. Because it just doesn't attack bitterness and try to replace it with uh, having a forgiving spirit, which is really tough to do, and that root of bitterness is just hanging in there, like we're just going to apply forgiveness to, to it. It's got to be supplanted. It has to be replaced. It has to be driven out. And what Hebrews tells us is that it's driven out by contemplating considering Jesus, his work on the cross, by considering his example, by considering God's familial love for us in training. That'll be important. His family love for us. So his salvation love in Christ, his family love for us, and his new covenant blessings. Now before we look at those three ways to supplant bitterness, it'd be helpful to see a little bit of the context of the challenge that these believers are given. Uh, In Hebrews 10.32, we're told that these believers that he's writing to went through immense suffering. Hebrews 10.32, they were enlightened, so they saw the glory of Christ, and they were excited, and they knew that believers suffer, and they go through trials. And so when they were persecuted, there was a time of rejoicing. But as they began to endure a hard struggle with sufferings, that's the word, the phrase used by the Hebrew writer, they were publicly exposed to affliction, They faced prison. They lost their property and possessions. And after a time, that joy begins to wane and weaken. They were beginning to lose their confidence. So it's a context of suffering. They have just grabbed onto the new covenant promises in Christ Jesus. But in so doing, they're facing persecution from their family, from their culture, their job. Everything's rejected them. They've been rejected by all. And they're struggling. They're wavering. And so it's fitting that he throws this exhortation on bitterness right here, right in the middle of Hebrews 12. There's also context of uh, the warning against apostasy. That is a rejection of Christ in an ultimate sense. In fact, if you looked at Hebrews 12.15, you'll see that warning. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, he's writing in the context of those who, who don't grab onto Christ by saving faith. They, they don't... Uh, embrace his saving grace. And so the text actually warns us that it's the root of bitterness that keeps men and women from believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in him. Now, principally, we can apply this to ourselves because of the context of Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, he tells us that we consider Christ and we lay aside every sin that entangles us. And he's talking to believers. So in principle, we understand even though this is dealing with apostasy and someone who doesn't enter into his grace because of bitterness, it can also be applied principally to believers in our war against sin. That is, how can we enjoy the grace of God and our sanctification if we're holding, harboring, growing a root of bitterness, if we're watering it, if we're creating an environment for it? So, solutions to it. Again, the danger... There's apostasy in its ultimate sense. There's the danger of suffering and holding on to Christ. What's the solution? And again, right here in the middle, he gives us bitterness and then surrounds it with the context of grace. Well, before we look at the solution, let's look a little more at bitterness. Verse 15 again. 
see to it. This is, we get the word episkopos from this, episcopalian, it just means to give oversight, episcopalian, episkopos, to give oversight, to use the eldership. But here it's the idea of to look intently. And notice he says, see to it that no one fails. And then he says in verse 15, by it many become defiled. So it's a corporate, there's community. It's a call for the, 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 the church to watch out for one another because of the root of bitterness that will grow up. And when that root of bitterness grows up, it defiles many. It affects many. That root continues to grow out of the heart, through the life, into other people's hearts, and begins to, to, to plant its roots and to continue to grow. So he says, watch out. The idea is continual watching, and we're all watching for one another. Bitterness can be translated to cut or to prick. It, it describes an internal self-inflicting wound. Now, I'll give you a little more uh, description of this. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 73. You'll see Asaph as he's struggling with trials, struggling with bitterness. In Psalm 73, verse 21, I cheated and marked it, and I still can't get it. <laughs> Psalm 73, verse 21. We won't unpack the whole text. But just notice how he describes his bitterness. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked, pricked in heart. It's a cutting. Cutting from what? Verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Describing one who is living from the flesh, viewing life from one's own folly of thinking rather than embracing the revelation of God's wisdom, which he needs to apprise the situation. He says it's like the pricking of the heart, but it's like a beast. So we're looking from the flesh, from the, the sinful nature, and notice who it apprises. It's toward God, ultimately. God's sovereign. He's in charge. Lord, why are you letting this happen? When we begin to think about the circumstance from ourselves, we act like beasts toward God. It's like a pricking, cutting of the heart. In Acts 8, and this will provide fodder for us for throwing on the flames of Hebrews 12 to understand it more fully. But Acts chapter 8, if you remember Simon, he's in, in verse 20, well, we'll start with uh, 20, verse 19. Acts 8 verse 19. Simon is jealous. He's been seeing the Spirit of God work through the laying on of hands of the apostles. He wants to buy it. In verse 19, he says, well, in verse 18, he offers them money. Then he says, give me, give me this power. In verse 20, Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Hold on to that. Obtain grace through money. Uh, verse 22, repent. Therefore, of this wickedness of yours, pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent, the motives of your heart may be forgiven you. What's Peter's appraisal about obtaining the gift of God with works, with money, with self-accomplishment? Verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So there's his appraisal of the situation, his idea that he could somehow earn grace by purchasing it, the gift of God. Peter says, you are in the gall of bitterness and you're in the bond of iniquity. You see bitterness and the bond and uh, chains of iniquity wrapped together in the idea of trying to earn grace. And I say that, that's very important because when we look at bitterness, go back to Hebrews 12, we're going to see a couple of features, dangers about bitterness that help us run to Christ. First of all, it is at war with God's grace. We saw that with Simon. It is at war with God's grace. 
He says, verse 15, see to it, watch out everyone for one another, that you fail to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness. Bitterness is at war with God's grace. He describes this uh, rejection of grace by describing the root of bitterness. God is sovereign over circumstances, people. And so when we are bitter towards these circumstances and people, we're bitter against God. What's interesting in Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, that he runs us to Mount Sinai. This helps give us some description of this idea of not obtaining grace. And verse 18, notice the four. He's connecting back to bitterness. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness and gloom and a tempest. He says it's terrifying. It couldn't endure. He's describing Mount Sinai. And this helps us understand really that where does bitterness come from? The Hebrew writer gives us a portrait of Mount Sinai where God's law was given to his people, mandating his people to obey God to receive his blessing. And if they disobeyed, they would fall under his curse. Deuteronomy 28 through 29. That's oversimplistic, but that is one major perspective. I understand there's also portraits of redemption. But in its basic form, Mount Sinai gave the call to do this and live, and if you don't do it, you will die. Galatians, Paul in Galatians says, it was meant to be a tutor to show us that we could not keep God's law, that we fell under his curse and we needed redemption. But here's the point being made. When we're bitter, we're stepping underneath the shadow of Mount Sinai. When I took my family to visit my brother in the mountains up in Washington, uh, north of uh, Spokane, towards Canada, uh, Robin said, I don't want to live here. My, my brother is right down the valley between two large, what we would call in Nebraska, mountains. And they would say they're hills. But for a large portion of the day, there is no sun. In fact, the place they lived before that was even worse. They were down in a valley, which even made it, those hills even bigger and kept out the sun. The Hebrew writer is saying when we are bitter, we are living in the shadow of Mount Sinai. That is, we're operating based upon the principle of trying to maintain our relationship with God and with people based upon works. Like Simon. Like Simon. What would that look like? Well, we try to keep God's law to gain his blessing, and when we fail, we're cursed. That's the mentality. What does that look like in our personal lives? Well, when we live that way, we establish a standard of how people should relate to us in order to receive our blessing. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. When they don't meet those standards, we threaten them with our curse. Now, no one can meet God's standards. Mount Sinai was meant to drive us to Mount Zion, to the cross. It's good, it's wonderful to see God's law, but we can't keep it. We need a Savior who can But when we apply the the ethic of Mount Sinai to other people, we're in that place of retribution. This is my standard. You failed it. And now you've got to earn that relationship again. And therein, heart of bitterness is cultivated. That's the setting that the Hebrew writer places Mount Sinai in for our exhortation. We hold on to the hurts. There's been injustice done. We meditate on them. We dwell on the unfair circumstances. We want to exact vengeance. And until that's done, I'm not going to establish a relationship with you or you with me. You need to earn it. Guys, that failed us before God. And he pointed us to the redemption of Christ and his grace in which he stepped in, did it for us, and granted us life in him. He says, that view 
is a view that leads to bitterness. So bitterness is at war with grace. It's also the cause of trouble and defilement. Continuing in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up. It's living. You can't just keep it down there. It continues to grow if it's not supplanted. And causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So it's the source of trouble. It's not only at war with grace. It's saying, I don't need grace because I'm the standard. You failed me. It's based on your human efforts or my efforts or lack thereof. We don't need grace. I don't need it. That's the heart of bitterness, but it also causes trouble. The, the word trouble is used in Luke 6.18. It's a very picturesque word. It's used in Luke 6.18 of the tormenting of a demon. And I say that because the description is agitation and torment. Bitterness torments us like the demon tormented the young man in Luke 6.18. Fights and makes war with us. Agitates. Cuts. We don't need the grace of God, so we begin to continually judge, hold on to our hurts, live in light of the shadow of Mount Sinai. Defilement is a very interesting word. In fact, in the context of Hebrews, the saints would have had it developed for them. In the Old Covenant, God wanted to underscore that when we sin against God and we are separated from his life, we are polluted, we are defiled. And so the Lord gave pictures of leprosy in which someone had to say, defiled, defiled, unclean, unclean, stay away from me, don't touch me, I'll contaminate you. And the leper was moved into a valley, uh, removed from the rest of society. When a person touched a dead body, he was called unclean. He was separated from God's community. He had to go through a ritual, a ritual of washings to gain entrance to the community of God's people. The Hebrew writer is saying that this root of bitterness, it's living, it's active, it causes trouble, it agitates the soul, and through it, that's through the root of bitterness and its operation, many become polluted, defiled by sin. And one example he gives is Esau with sexual immorality. Notice the purpose. It's moving from one to the next. He failed to obtain the grace of God. Root of bitterness springs up. By it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral. At the heart of immorality is defilement, it's pollution of sin, it's separation from God and that sinful conduct. But at the root is bitterness. Esau, in Genesis 36, married foreign women, Canaanites, many of them, matter of fact. He's using that as an example. Because what Esau did, if you remember, he was given by God's gift, grace and inheritance. He sold it off principle of Mount Sinai, even before Mount Sinai was in the story. He sold it off to Jacob for, you know, food to meet his daily needs. And then he wants it back. But he found no room for repentance. It was, drove him to defilement and to sexual morality. I'll tell you, when somebody comes for counseling and they say, I'm struggling with pornography, I'm struggling with adultery, I'm struggling with, it's the root of bitterness. And until that root of bitterness is supplanted by the grace of God. That is, I'm a sinner. I need Christ. And look what he's done for me. And I rest in that as the root of bitterness supplanted. And it's going to then deal with the heart of sexual morality and defilement. It's all rooted in bitterness to God. I deserve more. How dare my spouse do that? How dare they do that? We, we understand the root of bitterness, right? I mean, it's powerful. You think you got it out, you think you cut it out, you think you forgave, and then you smell something, you hear something, 
You hear the, the sight of something, the sound of something, boom, you're catapulted back to that hurt. Out comes the, the heart of bitterness again. You're like, where did that come from? Forgive, 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 forgive. And it seems to just fight against you the more you tell yourself, I need to forgive. It's dangerous. It keeps us from grace. So we don't believe we need it. It's a hurt I'm going to harbor. It leads to defilement and immorality. And it doesn't leave room for repentance. It doesn't leave room for repentance. Verse 17, Esau is an example to us, found no chance to repent. The idea is no room to repent. There is no spiritual environment to repent. He, in order to repent, one needs to see his spiritual poverty, that I'm guilty before God, and repent and look for the grace of God in the gospel. But when someone is harboring bitterness, I'm right there, Ron. I, 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 I exact judgment to bring restoration. They need to come to me and restore that relationship. It's all based on works. There's no room for repentance. Now, it wasn't that Esau didn't desire it, for he, he, he sought it. He desired to inherit the blessing, verse 17. It wasn't that he didn't sorrow it over it enough and weep. He says he sought it with tears. So there was the desire, and he sought for it, but there was no spiritual environment for repentance and the reception of grace. Until he's willing to confess his own personal sin before God, he doesn't see his need for grace. Can't forgive. Now, how do we make war? How do we make war? Well, first of all, we look at Jesus. Pretty simple. It's powerful. It's there that we see our sinfulness. We're ready for grace. We look, first of all, at Jesus' salvation work. Look at chapter 12, verse 2. In the context of laying aside, stripping aside sin. So in order to lay aside sin, verse 2, we looking to Jesus. It's, the, it's, it's a present continual look to Jesus. So we're stripping by looking to Jesus. I use that term because Ephesians 4 talks about putting off by putting on. As we see the glory of Christ, we see sin for what it is, and we press into Christ, we strip aside sin because of the sheer glory of Christ laid before us. What do we look at? Well, we look at his work. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now notice he says, by looking to Jesus. Well, what are we looking at? The fact that he is the founder, that's the Greek word archagon, which means ruler, chief, author, the author of our faith. And then he says perfecter, it underlines the end, the completion, the finality. We get telescope or teleology, looking at the end goal. Christ is the end. So he's the beginning of faith and he's the, the end of it. He's the source and the finality, the completion. So if I want to grow in faith, I need to look at the source of faith, Christ, and he's the end of my faith, the completion of it. Now, the descriptions here embellish that even more. I don't mean embellish in the wrong sense, but amplify it. Notice he endured the cross. It's at the cross there that, that we... As we look at the cross and we see our sin and we see what Christ has done, that faith is birthed for hearing. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The cross is the very foundation of our faith. It was there that our sin's guilt was atoned for. It's because of his suffering obedience that Christ imputes to us his righteousness. So when we look at the cross, our bitterness is cut because we see ourselves before God and our need for Christ. 
and what he's done. It's their faith grows. He's also the completion of our faith, for it says that he ascended. He, he sat down at the right hand of God. It, it's dealing with the completion of his work. So the beginning, as we look at the cross for what he did for us, so our faith is encouraged and stirred. It's where it began. So we look at the cross, and we look at his resurrection. We see the end. We see his, the completion. In other words, here's the point. We see his victory. You see, bitterness as a result of me fighting, making war, defending myself. What the cross says is you can't. Only Christ can. He's the victory. He's won. Rest in him. It supplants bitterness. We also look at Jesus' example, verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Boy, to fight the heart of bitterness, just take that right there and walk in there and go, ah, I was the hostile one, even with my bitterness against him. But how did he respond? He didn't grow weary or faint-hearted. He encourages us. Christ's beautiful example. Notice he says against himself, against his person. Think about the person of Christ. Think about Jesus as the eternal, beautiful, powerful Son of God who created the universe, sustains it by His power. And here is this awful reality. The Creator, the one who is sustaining everything, even the life breath of sinners, is humbly, gently, and lovingly remaining under our hostility against Him as the author and perfecter of our faith. There's nothing more beautiful than that, more supreme. The beauty of Christ's gentle humility for you. And notice the application of it in verse 4. This is what, what, what is this for? In your struggle against sin. It's in your struggle. This is to encourage you as you see your struggle, instead of defending yourself and fighting and fostering and watering the root of bitterness, we look at our sin, see what Christ has done for us, see the finished work, we glory in Him, and then we look at the beauty of Christ's person and my hostility against Him, and we, we draw from the beauty of Christ's person as He endured and remained under for me, and I use that to fight against sin. Now, the example of Christ is meaningless to us unless we first embraced Him as the author and perfecter of our faith. And He lays it in this order, for this reason. The example of Jesus is meaningless to us unless we first embraced him as the author and perfecter of our faith. Why? Because his example is so perfect and so glorious, it will condemn you and you'll be put back at Mount Sinai again. I can't follow his example. I'm trying. It's condemning me. But if you've entrusted your life to Christ, you've seen your sin, you've walked into the shadow of the cross under Mount Sinai, now Christ is for you. He's won the victory What a beautiful example that's for me, not a threat to me. It will guard us against bitterness. It doesn't leave room for resistance to the grace of God because it humbles us and shows us the grace of God in Christ. So consider God's salvation blessings in Christ as the first attack. Second second attack, God's family blessings for you in Christ. God's family blessings. Now, one of the challenges with bitterness is we think God's against us in the circumstances. They're not going well. They're not meeting our expectations. The Hebrew writer says, actually, you need to reinterpret them through the lens of grace. If Christ is the author and foundation of your faith and he took hostility for you as a beautiful savior, then he's for you. So you need to reinterpret the circumstances. Stop, Stop seeing them as a threat. See them as God's work in your life out of love. Now, notice the character of this discipline. I want to drop down to verse 6. First of all, it's love. 
The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So discipline, training, even through the circumstances, is a mark of his love and the fact that he's received you. Why? Because he doesn't discipline illegitimate children. I remember times I'd train our children and then, you know, we'd make comments on the neighborhood kids and why they could get away with things. I'm like, they're not my children, so I'm not training them. But I'm training you because I love you. The Lord trains us because of love. And what is understanding his love going to do in verse 5? How are we going to esteem the discipline of the Lord? My son, do not regard lightly. We're not going to devalue the discipline. We're not going to see as a threat against us. We're going to value it. And we're not going to become weary. Do not be weary when reproved by him. We're giving up. God's against me. No, he's for me. He's disciplining me because he loves me. Embrace that and we're strengthened and we rightly value the discipline and training of the Lord. He's treating us as sons. Now notice verse 7. What's the purpose of this discipline? Well, it's because we're sons. It's a mark of sonship. But he says, verse 7, there in the middle, God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Now, what's he going to accomplish through it? Verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That word trained, we get gymnasium from it. It's the idea of labor-intensive training, blood, sweat, and tears. And what's his purpose in verse 10? It's for our good to share his holiness. Well, why would we want to share his holiness? Because we're his children and he's conforming us to himself. In fact, in verse 14, he says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. He's holy. He saved us, the Holy Savior, to conform us to holiness because he's our father and we're his children. And he loves us and he's training us. In fact, he says it's by that training and discipline in verse 12 that we're able to strengthen those who are weak. Wow. So bitterness, I quit looking at the cross. I quit valuing Christ's example. I don't see my sin, don't see grace. I misinterpret discipline as God against me. And don't see it's a mark of his love for me. And that he's actually conforming me to reflect his character. Because that's who I am. That's who I'm to be. And he's preparing me for heaven to be with him. So consider God's salvation blessings in Christ. Remember God's family blessings that he trains us. And then lastly and quickly, don't forget his new covenant blessings. And that's in verse 22. We've already covered the rest of the text. So we can drop right to verse 22. We are placed in a new environment. You see, in our bitterness, we're trying to establish our own kingdoms, defend our own kingdom. And he says, no, you don't need to do that. Look at verse 22, but you have come. Have, that is, you entered there and you are there. And he's describing us as joining the assembly of heaven. They're there. They're perfected, glorified. We're here, but we're part of one body. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I love that. The city has been given to us. It's ours. It's untouchable. I don't need to defend it. It's been victoriously conquered and given to us in Christ. So we have a heavenly kingdom. We have a heavenly family, verse 23. To the assembly of the firstborn, the firstborn is Christ, is describing him as the heir of all things. And because we belong to him, that's the, the assembly, the group of the, the, the church is the idea of the firstborn, they're enrolled in heaven. Why are we enrolled in heaven? Because we belong to the firstborn, the heir of Christ. 
Notice we join with the spirits of the righteous made perfect in verse 23. So he's saying you have a family that's been given to you in this salvation covenant of Mount Zion. You don't need to fight for it, defend it. It's yours by gift. And notice who else we have. We've come, verse 23, to God, the judge of all. In verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have Christ. We have God. And we come to a God who's the judge of all. But we come through the mediatorship of Christ, that he has bought us. He's cleansed us with his blood. Now, how do we respond then? You see, bitterness is supplanted right here in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. See, bitterness is driven out by thanksgiving. For receiving, that's a gift of grace. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why? Because Christ himself accomplished it, the mediator of the new covenant. And thus let us offer out of that gratefulness for receiving by gift this kingdom. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We can come to him. We can worship him with reverence and awe. To say that with reverence and awe I can come to God. Me a sinner? Yes, because of Christ. And that's by grace. My son went into surgery this week. Bruised shoulder. Purple, blue, yellow. Don't want to embarrass him, but it's pretty aggressive. I saw the doctor walk over to him and write his initials on it. I just sitting there going, whoa. What an example. Why is he doing that? It's under my authority and my care. You know, Christ has done redemption. You know where I'm going. He's written on your hurts. He's written on your trials. He's written on your sufferings and says, they're mine. I've redeemed them. They don't belong to you. They belong to me. Therefore, receive it with gratitude. And when we forget that, look back at the cross. Be reminded of your sin and the grace that you've received. Look at the example of Jesus. Remember his discipline and trains out of love to conform you to Christ. And remember, you've been given a kingdom that's untouchable, a people that are perfect and complete, glorified. And we've joined them. Even though they're in heaven, we're, we're part of that family. And we've come to God and to a mediator. He's written his name on him. Lord, we thank you for Christ. Chase out our bitter spirit living in the shadow of Mount Sinai by reminding us of the glory of Mount Zion that you've given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.